Good morning. Jeremy, I'm glad our sharing office is a great experience, as you described it. So, yeah, never know, right? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's such a joy for me to be here and to bring God's word. Uh, but I do want to start by uh, first saying thank you. Uh, as Jeremy mentioned, I work with InterVarsity, a campus ministry, and we're, uh, you know, one of the missionaries that you support and, and pray for. And you've been doing that for, for many years. Uh, and so I want to thank you for, for coming alongside us and helping uh, reach students and bringing the gospel to them and, and for caring for them. Uh, God's grace and the partnerships of many churches and your prayers is what uh, allows us to do what we do. And I'm also especially grateful for ways you welcome both Diana Abdurrahmanova and Taiman Lee, who both go here. I think I see Taiman sitting in the back. Uh, and Diana is actually helping her mom moved today. But they go here and you've welcomed them and cared for them. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, I've also invited Lindsay, who's our new hire, our intern. She's also sitting in the back. Uh, and she's just starting ministry with us this year. So if you get a chance, if you can at the end, just go bother her and say hello and, and just encourage her as she starts this journey. Um, but uh, well, today I'm excited to bring God's word for us. Uh, I think uh, you've been doing a look serious with uh, Adam, and uh, you've kind of finished chapter 17. So today we're going to jump in uh, and look in chapter 18, verses 1 to 17. So if you have your, your Bible, if you can take it out. Uh, I'm using the ESV version. Uh, we're going to look at Luke 18, verses 1 to 17. Uh, let me pray for us for God's word, uh, and then we'll read it. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for who you are, the many ways that you provide and care for us, for your protection, for your love, for your mercy. God, your word teaches us that apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. And so when we stand, when we breathe, all that we do, it is because of your grace. And God, as we study your word today, would you please speak? Everything that is from you would grow deep and would produce fruit. And anything that's not from you, it would remain here and not go anywhere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to read for us our text, Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 1 to 17. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples uh, after they've been 17, you've seen kind of Jesus has been talking about the end of days and how a disciple of Jesus is to live in those days. And so this is a continuation of that teaching. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not be me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. It will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find on earth? Will he find faith on earth? He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus said to them, say, or said to them, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning, uh, we get to follow one of Jesus' teachings where he's trying to show us what is a posture of a true follower of Jesus. How are we to approach God and how are we to engage him? Um, we also get to see what are ways maybe not to engage God. What are the things that our God does not accept? What the kingdom of God is not about but he also tells us how one can enter this kingdom. Uh, he's teaching us how to pray, uh, like in the simplest term. He's also teaching us how not to pray. Uh, and he's, we're going to see how we can enter this kingdom of God that he is talking about. And so here's my hope. If you're here visiting and you're not a follower of Jesus and you've been asking different kind of questions about who he is, my hope is in what, what King Jesus cares about and how he wants us to pray and also what he doesn't want us to pray or what his posture that he doesn't accept, I really hope you'll, you'll find it compelling to why Jesus is who he says he is and why it's worth following him. And if you're a follower of Jesus, my hope today is that it would deepen our understanding and relationship with, with God. It, it would grow our intimacy with him. So how does Jesus teach us how to pray? Well, Often when Jesus teaches, he tells parables. Uh, parables are these fictitious, made-up stories that uh, teachers use to make specific points. Now, Jesus tells two types of parables. One type of parable is where he, he uses analogies, uh, but they're kind of vague. And so if you really want to know, you have to stick around and ask for more questions for explanation. And often he uses that method to see who's really there to follow him or just there because they were taking you know, food from him or healing. Uh, but the other type of parable is a parable where he uses very explicit and very obvious analogies to call the people out that are in front of him. So there's no question what the parables are about for anybody that's paying attention. Well, this morning our parables are that type where he tells explicitly obvious uh, stories using characters that the audience would understand. And here we enter into the story of the widow and the judge. For context, uh, when a, in that time at least, when a woman loses her husband, she also loses other things. She loses her status in society. Often 
respectability, access to resources, community, friends. Um, to be a widow uh, in that time would be uh, to be marginalized or ostracized for, for, for your status, often because the husband was the provider, the husband was the advocate, the husband was the voice. So here, this widow is looking for somebody to avenge her. She's looking for justice. Uh, she's lost control over many things in her life, and this is probably uh, just in addition to that, and she's often at the mercy of other people. She doesn't have really much decision-making or influential powers. If anything, she is completely helpless and dependable on others, and in this case, on the judge. She's desperate, desperate enough to keep showing up at this judge's place over and over and over. Uh, and she keeps begging and begging and begging for justice. Now this, I think for some of us, we don't have to go far to realize that we live in a broken world or a toxic world where people are wronged or experiencing injustice the way this widow uh, experiencing. We have people, even with us probably, who are experiencing some form of marginalization. Um, and if you're that person, you might feel uh, like an outsider in your own community. Um, that you want people to understand and, and respond to your bane. Uh, you might be somebody who's begging others to pay attention to you and to give you justice. Uh, and if you can't relate to the widow uh, personally, I am sure, right, I'm positive that you know people who are crying out for justice. Uh, you don't have to look much to, to know that there are people looking for answers. And it might be that they're going to political or world for solutions, or they might be looking for racial justice or financial retribution, uh, relational recognition. It could be whatever, that we know that our world is filled with so many people who are desperate. And when people are desperate, like this widow, they do whatever it takes, right? We do whatever it takes to be heard, to be seen, to be recognized. See, when somebody's oppressed or marginalized, they will look for hope wherever they can find it. They will hope in anyone who might give them any sense of control, any sense of attention. Uh, some of us look to politics. Others will mobilize and organize some protests and march. Some will empty their bank accounts, filling, finding the best doctors, the best counselor, anybody who would give you the best care. And though these efforts might bring some relief or momentary belief, if you notice, they all depend on the decency and compassion of another human being. Right, another politician, another teacher, another doctor, another judge. And like this judge in our story, we might get justice, right? He does give her justice ultimately, but what we're reminded here is that in, a, in this world, if you are overlooked or marginalized, when you receive justice, it's because you're an annoyance and inconvenience to the way of the world, right? It's not out of the, uh, people will respond to you because you might potentially be getting in their way. Whereas King Jesus will see how he responds 
But what is Jesus' invitation? It's an invitation to the posture of this widow. And what's her posture? He's, she's praying with a desperation, right? She's praying to God with such, des- such desperation and helplessness and complete dependability as if she has nowhere else to go. Like God is inviting each one of us to pray with such posture, with such desperation and helplessness. But unlike this judge and unlike this world, God cares deeply about each one of us and responds to us because he cares. The judge gives a deaf ear to this widow, no matter how persistent she is. Whereas God the Father hears the cry, if you look at the text, the cry of his elect, of his people. God pays attention to all of our needs and longings. He sees them, he receives them, and he responds to them, right? He knows your deep groaning, your deep desire. The earthly judge is annoyed by the, the needs of this woman. God the Father is burdened by the love of his people and for his hate for injustice. And he wants to give justice to those who cry to him. Here's the key. Day and night, out of desperation. The early, this earthly judge delays justice to this woman, doesn't he? He just keeps kind of putting it aside until he couldn't deal with it anymore. God the Father here gives justice right time at the right moment. So what does this mean? For us as followers of Jesus... One of the key markers, what would allow us to stand out, is to approach God with a desperation, persistence, and obsession of prayer posture for justice. For God to make broken things right. A follower of Jesus is actively, routinely, and all the time praying for God's kingdom to come, for his righteousness to come from as, as it is in heaven. It is to put all of our hope in the Father who hears our cries, who sees our pain and responds quickly and in time. It's an invitation to always pray to God with desperation. I, this is really good news because if you're in the receiving end of injustice, right? If you're one who would say, I am experiencing injustice, to know that Jesus sees your pain and invites you to keep coming to him and to put your trust in him. The world, the world might give you justice, but it's because they benefit from giving you justice, not because they actually care about you. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus hears and sees people's pain and in fact, in the kingdom of God, there will not be any, injust- any injustice that will go unpunished. There won't be any unjust act that won't be held accountable. And there won't be any unjust gain that will not be retributed. I think that's the beauty of King Jesus is that he will make things right. So, but if you're in that, the type of person, maybe you're not experiencing injustice. Maybe life is just okay. Maybe you have comfort and opportunities. Praise God. But here's the invitation. This is also good. To get on our knees and pray every day for the kingdom of God to come. So that those who are oppressed can find freedom. 
to pray desperately every day so that those who are hungry can be fed, so that those who are sick can be healed, those who are weak can find strength, those who are ignored can be seen. See, the more blessing we have in this world, the more we're asked to pray and cry out to God on behalf of others because we have received God's grace not because we deserve it, between Jeremy's prayer and Stephen's prayer, like the invitation is that we have done nothing on our own, have we? But we've received everything from God. And so as people who receive, the invitation here actually is to pray on behalf of others so that they can find relief, so that they can find hope. Can you imagine if this is what the world knows about us as Christians? Yet Jesus says, nevertheless, in verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find on earth, will he find faith on earth? Jesus' concern seems to be when Jesus is about to, he's going to come back, that he won't find that many of us praying this way. That we won't be praying with such desperation. that there won't be that many of us praying in faith. In Hebrew 1, we're taught that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So why would Jesus be concerned that at the end there might not be that many of us praying with desperation for God's justice? I want to give us three potential explanations. I think one is and this includes myself, I think it's easier for us to have faith in the things we see and the things we touch. And sometimes we can think God, because he may not be always visible in a way that objects are, we, we can tend to put our hope in things and others than we do in God. Right? Often I think we take God for granted because we have a ton of options we can go to for answers in this world we live in. Like, if we're really honest, like, we only need God to kind of bless the things that we're thinking of doing, or when we're so desperate, we don't have anywhere else to go, right? Like, out of need, or just kind of sprinkle a little bit of blessing to, to get permission to, to what we're doing, instead of this desperation as if, like, we have nowhere else to go at all times. And I think about part of it is, like, we can find protection in, in, in insurance policies, Security and, you know, the bigger your bank account, the more you feel secure. Um, like if you're a social media person, you can f find affirmation from a ton of people that you don't even know, right? Like how many likes do you get and how many, like, people respond your, to your thing in a positive way? We can even go to our politicians for answers. Or you can just search Google, right? Like... When was the last time you searched in Google and Google said, don't have an answer for this? Like, there's always an answer to go to. And so because of that, sometimes I think we can forget that we actually need God every day desperately. And I think when we think we have options everywhere else, when he comes, he may not find many of us praying every day with desperation. I think that it's also hard for us to pray for God's justice in that desperation unless it actually personally affects us. Like, we care about our rights. We care about 
our protection. We specialize in what affects us the most, but not necessarily what affects others. And part of it is we just live such busy lives that we forget that there might be people who are suffering every day. Unless that suffering is affecting us, it's really easy to not remember because we just have so much going in our lives. Uh, there are people who follow Jesus in prisons every day as we speak, experiencing all sort of torture, all sort of torment because of their relationship with Jesus. We could be praying for them, right? We can pray desperately for them, but I'll be honest with you. Most of the time between my clock going off and when my day is over, my schedule is just I have a lot to do. And Jesus is worried that nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find on earth? Will we live as if Jesus is our only hope or will we just get overoccupied with our daily needs? And I think the third one, and this is probably the most relevant one for all of us, is that we just don't like waiting. In fact, I think what we're taught in our culture and in our world is that what is good is what produces the most outcome, what causes the least inconvenience, what takes the least time, right? What is most productive, what's most cost-effective, what is the least time-consuming? I'll prove this to you. And maybe I'm just talking about myself here, so just pretend I'm judging myself. But when was the last time you ordered something on Amazon and you kept clicking refresh in that order like it tells you where the shipment is, where, you know, where, you know, do you track your shipments? Like, I do it all the time. It's like, okay, is it here? Or sometimes the UPS comes and you drop it off, but I try to play it cool until they leave, but I'm looking at the window. Okay, they're out. I grab it, open it, right? And I get that high, and then it's like, okay, when is the next shipment? Like, we're not good at waiting. I know I'm not. Uh, or if you have kids, you're trying to do something on the internet, and they all log in to multiple screens, and the Wi-Fi kind of slows down a little bit. Like, just imagine the wrath you feel internal that you hope nobody will ever see, right? We just do not like waiting. And Proverbs 13 says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. We do not like to defer things. Because the longer you defer, the more you feel that sickness. And we do not like to feel sick. And so what we do is we do whatever it takes to get to that tree of life, to fulfill that desire, don't we? And I think even though Jesus is inviting us to pray with a posture of desperation, helplessness, and dependability, waiting for God's justice, because we don't like to defer things, we'll find a way to, to get it on our own instead of waiting on him. But... Just to re reiterate, Jesus' invitation here is to come back to him and to say that if we claim to follow him, then we need to put our faith in him and wait on him. Because why? Because he wants to make his dwelling with us, to wipe our tears and, and all of our pain and our suffering. He's saying, I want to meet all your needs. Come to me like this widow, completely helpless and dependent. I will hear your cry. I will come quickly. I will avenge you. I will give you justice. Cry to me day and night. Pray for my kingdom to come in your life and on this earth. It's an invitation to always be helpless and dependable on him. And the warning to not lose hope. Oh. 
But then he tells this other parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee to tell us how not to pray. If we're, the invitation is to pray with hopelessness, helplessness, not hopelessness, sorry, helplessness and dependability on him, he's also saying there's a way you can come to me that's not okay. So we're going to look at that. We have two men here, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And it's helpful for us to understand who these people are to, kind of, to, to get to the point. And so I want to start with understanding who the Pharisee is and how a Pharisee is perceived in their time. They're a member of the Jewish sect known for their strict observance and traditional, uh, of the traditional and written law. They're members of the working class known for discipline and for prayer. Uh, now, from our lens, often when we think of Pharisees, we see from their interaction with Jesus and the conflict that they're in all the time. But I'm going to challenge us to think from like the wider lens of how people in that time actually perceived them. And here's how they perceived them. They were diligent men of faith who fought to honor God with their lives. Who fought for their right to worship freely, especially under the rule of the Roman Empire. They were the protectors of the Jewish faith, often in the face of many oppositions, including a ton of paganism that was going around then. Here's what Pharisees are. They attended their church. They attended prayer meetings. They definitely went to home group. They paid their tithe, so pastors loved them. They fasted regularly. They check off all the list of things that a church person is supposed to do. They were respectable, they were honorable, and often others aspired to be like them. In contrast to that, we have a tax collector. Uh, and the tax collectors were Jewish citizens, but they were hired by the Roman empires to charge taxes to their own people. But tax collectors, one of the ways they made money is by charging extra and collecting some of that money. So just imagine if you are a Jewish citizen being taxed by your own person for your oppressor, and then they charge you extra to keep for themselves. How would you feel? Well, here's the reality. They were considered as traitors, enemy of the people. They represent everything that is dishonest, everything that is corrupt, and everything that is abusive. They're the definition of unjust people. So here, Jesus is telling a story using two opposing characters to show us that self-righteousness and this idea that holding other people or those people in contempt is not part of the kingdom of God. That to hold others with, disappro- with, with condescension, with scorn, and, and you thinking you're better than them is not the way of the kingdom of God. The Pharisee, had so much confidence in who he was, he even thanks God that he's not like others. He's so poised in his religious practices, and he has so much assurance in his faith. He's a praying man, obviously, because we see him praying. He fasts twice a week, which means he's disciplined and focused. He gets his quiet time does. He does his devotion. He tithes from all that he gets. That's like short of saying... He gives out of his gross income from all his different investments and assets. He's a faithful giver. But what Jesus leaves out on purpose is that we don't see his heart and why he does all these things. Except this. I think his posture kind of gives it away. 
He's so confident in himself that he doesn't even see anything wrong with him. Or at least he doesn't think it's important to bring it up in front of God. I'm going to do some interpreting of like, I think how he sees himself. He sees himself as the one he gets it and others don't. He is aware, but others aren't. He sees himself as one better than others. He's safe, others are toxic. He's found, others are lost. His posture is that he has arrived, but others haven't. And Jesus is saying, someone with such posture will not be justified in front of God. Like, their prayers will not be answered. They will not be accepted by a holy father. I'm gonna, I think Jesus is talking about you and I here. He's inviting us. He's using this man to show us that in the kingdom of God, our prayers won't be answered and we won't find justice if our posture is that we're better than other people. In God's word, pride and self-righteousness has no place. Now, what does that look like today? I think we live in some of the most polarized times of our history. I've been in the States for 20 years, so I can only speak into that lens, and some of you have lived longer, so I don't know how things were before that. But everyone has kind of their camp, right? And we're kind of throwing rocks at other people. It could be political association, how we deal with issues of race, pandemic responses, whether to wear a mask or not to wear a mask, to get vaccinated or not. Like, it's okay to have these differences and disagreements, but this, I think the saddest part is, and that even happens in our churches, is that we start to hold others in contempt and we forget that each one of us are actually made in the image of God. That we're all in need of, in need of God's grace. So instead of begging God for mercy and remembering God's sovereign power, we compete with one another. Here are three ways I think we compete one another in, in, in a posture of self-righteousness. I think one is how we practice our faith. Like some of us are really good at checking all the things that we're supposed to do when we go to church, making sure our children do that, making sure others do that. But then when we run into people who may not be as disciplined as we are, we might think we're better than them. We might look at people who struggle with their spiritual journey and discipline, and instead of coming alongside them, we might even distance ourselves from them. For some of us, we're so progressive and we're so open to different ways of worship or different worship of prayer or, or singing or modernizing our practices that we judge others who might listen or pray or engage God in what you might label as old school or rigid or traditional. We practice this superiority of religion across denominations. Like some of us, we think we have the, the, the monopoly on the right theology and, and we speak negatively of other people. I mean, it's fine to have those tensions of disagreements, but when we start to hold people in contempt, this is what Jesus is warning about. 
true religion in James 1.27 says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans, the widows, and their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's an invitation for you to practice, for, for me to humble myself in front of God and to care for others. That's what religion is. Not to compare myself to Jeremy, not to compare myself to you, not to compare myself to other people, but to humble myself when I compare to other people. Here's another place where we practice some of this self-righteousness, and that's in how we engage justice. And this text is about people begging for justice. This is the I get it, but they don't. In one camp, there are some of us who are so passionate about justice that we're angry and hateful towards those who we say they don't get it. We're so aware and so woke that we can't even deal with other people. We might even go as far as removing ourselves from their presence and standing alone in front of God as if no one else gets it. We think we're safe and others are not. We think we're welcoming, but others aren't. And then on the other end, there are some of us who feel like we have to defend the gospel. And um, that you know, the gospel might be threatened by other people as if the gospel can be threatened by anything. We, we start to have this disdain or hate for people who th- might threaten our way of life. So then when we come in contact with those people who are begging for justice day and night, we get irritated and we get annoyed. The gospel becomes an excuse to defend our own values instead of trusting God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing, and who calls us to care for other people. All right, the third one, I think, the third way we can practice self-righteousness is in, in terms of who we are and what we've achieved. Those of us who have much, we find ways to justify our gains and look down on those who don't have much, and we forget that it's God who's given us to begin with. It might be education, it could be wealth, it could be nice things, nice place. We oversimplify other people's realities and pain instead of asking God to bless others the way he's blessing us. And for those of us who may not have much, we look at other people who do with a sense of disdain and hate without knowing any of their reality, any of their story. So instead of asking and depending on God for justice, And for his kingdom to come, we pray with a posture of hate and frustration to those who have much than we do. Jesus is inviting all of us to come to him. And he uses a task collector to make this point. He chooses somebody who we consider are those people. He picks someone who is obviously, without any doubt, considered an awful person. He's intentionally picking somebody with very questionable character to make his point of how we should engage one another and not how the Pharisee engages. So how does this tax collector engage? Actually, how we engage God. And how does this tax collector engage God? There are three things that stand out that he does. One is he has a posture of fear and humility. Scripture said that fear is the beginning knowledge of God. 
right? This tax collector, he can't even look up to heaven because he knows he's not worthy. Instead, he looks down with a posture of humility and submission. Do you see the invitation for us here? When put in front of a holy and perfect God, we're all as corrupt and as broken as anybody else. Like we can never dare say we do anything good in front of a holy and perfect God. We're not different than anybody else. Like we're called the children of God, not because we've earned anything, but because of God's extravagant grace. And so when we stand in front of him, our posture is that of humility and fear. We can't think where we get it and others don't. It's an invitation to have this posture of humility, like this tax collector. Here's the other thing he does. He is beating his chest, which culturally in that time means like a deep sorrow or lament. It's a way of expressing brokenness and sadness and and desperation and helplessness. He is fully aware that where he stands in relation to God. He probably also is fully aware where he stands in relation to the community. What he's saying is, I am not worthy. I don't deserve anything. Help me. Again, Jesus is trying to show his disciples that if we truly, truly understand our world and how hopeless it is without Jesus and how we, we actually contribute to that brokenness, then our response is to lament over every injustice in our world, including our role in it, and to come to God with this posture of lament, of crying out. And then thirdly, the tax collector understands who gives justice. He says, have mercy on me, a sinner. He understands something that the Pharisee forgets. Justice belongs to God. God is the one and true judge who can declare someone righteous, and it is God who can bring true justice. Not you, not me. I'm not safe for anyone, neither are you. I'm not the way to God. You're not either. Often we think the gospel is offensive to the world, but I think it's actually offensive to us first. Why? Because we think who we know who God justifies and who God doesn't justify. But in this story, I think it should bother us that Jesus is picking a tax collector one that I label as the cause of injustice, and he's the one who walks away justified, not the Pharisee. Why? Because God is the only one who sees our hearts. God is the one who can declare somebody innocent. God is the only one who sees the hearts, and we need to be really cautious as to not play that role of God and ascribe judgment and vengeance on others. Instead, the invitation is still the same. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians, with humility and gratitude. We need to live out what the apostle Paul calls the Philippians to do, and that is to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to count others more significant than ourselves. Can you imagine that? To count others in humility more significant than ourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. He says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The way of God, my friends, is this. It's to call God with humility. It's to come to God in humility. If we exalt ourselves and think we're better than others, then when the Son of Man comes, we will be rejected. But if we follow Jesus in his ways, a way of servitude and humility and denying ourselves, and, and if we humble in front of him, then God will exalt us and justify us. He will accept our cries and will give us justice. Jesus is inviting us to pray with a posture of humility, crying out to God day and night like the widow and this tax collector, remembering that God is the only true judge who can justify and declare us righteous. Okay. If you're not convinced by this, we're going to look at this third story uh, and the story of the children coming to Jesus. And what Luke does is that in mentioning the first two parables, he kind of solidifies his point or Jesus' point uh, in telling the story of children and how how someone can enter the kingdom of God. In fact, I think this is Luke's strongest point that helps solidify the first two parables. Uh, that, and, and here's the point, that we can't be part of the new heaven and the new earth unless we are like children. So what does it mean to be like a child? And this is perfect because there's a child right in front of me and it's been amazing to keep remembering. Okay, what does it mean to be a, like a child? I have two children at home. I have a four-year-old and I have a 16, 19-month-old. And, and so we might say, well, we know what it is to be a child. Uh, this point would be really obvious for, for the audience, the original audience, what it means to be like a child. Uh, and the point would be made so quickly that they would know exactly what Jesus is saying. Right? This is the kind of parable that where Jesus is not trying to create like, some mystery that people have to like, deconstruct. He's trying to make an obvious point. But I actually think we have a little bit more work to do for ourselves because what it means to be like a child is not the way we think about it. You see, in our culture, when we think children, we think they're innocent. They are simple, trusting, honest, open, cute. Uh, right? These are all characteristics of a child that we understand. But these are not the characteristics. But Jesus is not talking about characteristics of children when he says to be like a child. What he's talking about is what would be obvious to the people of that time. To be a child is this. To be a lower class citizen who are completely helpless and dependent on their parents. Like children were seen as completely helpless and dependent on others. And I think this is true even today. I'll give you an example. Early this week, our son we were playing outside, and he gets uh, pollen, allergies, like grass, kind of outdoor stuff. Well, he came like at 2 a.m. to my room, and, and he's just sneezing and just snotty. And I mean, he's adorable, and, and he's a lot of fun. But at 2 a.m., when you're being woken up, somebody who's just, it's just, it's not fun. 
right? And, but there was a moment where if I was him, if I was, if that was happening to me, I would know to go downstairs. I would know where the medicine is. I would give, take the medicine, you know, and then I would know what to do. But he's four years old. He is completely at the mercy of how I respond to him in that morning, right? He is at my mercy of if I was in, you know, be all polite about it and how I care for him, making sure I get his medicine. He, he's completely dependent on me. And so here, when he's, Jesus is saying to be like children, he's actually emphasizing the obvious thing that everybody would have known, that children are helpless and dependable others. So what is Jesus doing in this? He's just reaffirming everything he has said in the parable of the widow and the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That unless we approach God in full confession of our helplessness, with him, without, and, and our dependence on him, then we can't have a place in the kingdom of God. He says, this is who can enter the kingdom of God is somebody who is like a child. So the good news is that Jesus gives his life for us so that we can give him our allegiance and he will give us justice. He will satisfy our longings. The good news of Jesus is that because of the gift we receive from him, we can cry out to him day and night to bring relief to our lives and to those who are suffering. The good news is that we don't have to do anything but come to him as children. I mean, nothing but show up and saying, Lord, have mercy. This is the way he interacted with Jesus. If you look at if you, in, in the story of Mark, when the, the crowds came to him, like 5,000 men plus, he, he saw them and his text says, they were like sheep without a shepherd like harassed and helpless. And what does he do? He goes and meets their needs. The posture our father wants from us is to know that he is our confidence. He is our answer. He is our solution. So if you are in the world desperately wanting for God to bring justice, the good news of Jesus is that he cares about you and he will bring justice, even if the world doesn't. The good news of Jesus is that if you're well off and if you are in good place, the invitation is to give praise to God, to remember everything that you have is because of God. And out of that, to plea and intercede on behalf of others and in their needs. God is inviting each and one of us to come to him as children, completely helpless and dependable. Let's pray. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good to us. You give us life, life in abundance. Even when we were sinners, your word teaches us that you loved us and you gave your life for us. We can never be in a place where we think we're better than others because we know that everything we have is from you. Your word teaches us everything comes from you. It exists through your power and is intended for your glory. God, we want to be citizens of your kingdom who wait on you desperately in prayer. We want to be people who are known for our humility and call others into repentance. And Father, I pray especially for anybody who's here visiting who do not know you. I pray that these postures that we saw today, that they would find compelling that to be with you is better off than to wait on this world. 
to trust you is better off than to put our trust in the solutions of this world. God, thank you for loving us and for caring for us. In Jesus' name, amen.